are going to be in Romans chapter 12 today. We have been in a series over the last two weeks specifically diving into what does it mean to live the with God life, okay? What does it mean to live in God's presence in a kind of moment-by-moment way? Two weeks ago, we talked about the world as Jesus taught us is a God-drenched world, not a God-deserted world, that God is accessible to us in our everyday lives, that regular people can regularly experience God's presence. Last week, we looked at Jesus and realized he is the smartest man to have ever lived. Doesn't mean he knows all things about everything when he lived his earthly life, but he knew exactly what is most essential to teach humans how to live fulfilling lives in God's presence for the sake of the world. This week, we're turning the gaze towards us, all right? We're setting a foundation for the rest of the series with these three weeks, looking at the world, looking at Jesus, and looking at us. Today, we are going to learn that God's presence takes practice. God's presence takes practice. Let's read Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Pray with me. Lord, we hear your words. And we desire this morning to take them as just that, as your words that are true, that are over us, intended to guide us. And so, Holy Spirit, would you take these words that we believe are the very very words of God, and would you teach us? I pray for all of my friends sitting in this room that they would experience your seeing of them in their particular circumstances right now, that they would know you see their pain, that they would know you see their sin, you would know they, they would know you see their addiction, they would know that you see their desire for good and to make an impact in the world, that they would know you see their weaknesses, and that that's the very self that you desire that you desire to teach us how to learn your presence. So help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Just yesterday, my family were meeting with some good friends of ours that moved away. They were back in town, and we were sitting down there in their 60s. We were having lunch, and eventually the conversation turned to us. Um, they were our neighbors. They knew that, that I was a pastor, that we were a ministry family, that we have a church community here right in Westwood um, in the West L.A. region. And they asked, how, how, I think they said, how's the mission going, kind of along those lines, and described how encouraging it is, what God is doing. And um, the, my friend just 
kind of in a moment of honesty said, it always has surprised me that your church is primarily young people. It would seem to me that as people get older, then they start desiring to really nail down what the deeper meaning in life is, the importance of community, kind of this notion that as, as we're young, we have the world at our fingertips, and there are so many things that can distract us into a sense of, of pleasure, fulfillment, success. The world is at our fingertips. And I said, it's, it is humbling, and it is really weird when you look at the church across not only our country, but across the world, that it does seem to be aging, and there does seem to be this movement going on that the people are leaving the church, especially young people are leaving the church. But to be honest, this is me talking to my friend, something along the lines of, um, we believe that God is present with us and that he is inviting us to learn uh, a fulfilling life, to actually learn what it is to be human. And his response was, but fulfillment just comes from inside of us. And it was an interesting little moment that reflected a big reality in our context that fundamentally places what it means to be human and what it means to be fulfilled internally to be discovered in each one of us. And that's why it's shocking to him that, that young people would actually be seeking something outside of themselves. And this perspective doesn't come from nowhere. Over the last hundred years, some of the foremost thinkers that have shaped the world that we are in have put pieces in place that have made it possible for us to believe that fulfillment and genuine human life comes from within, all right? You have Darwin discovering all sorts of, of uh, uh, things about nature, about our world, about evolution. And as I'm saying this, what you need to not hear is that everything that they said and everything about the implications for what they taught um, are true. But if all knowledge, if all truth is fundamentally God's truth, then these things aren't scary to us, okay? So Darwin made these discoveries, but one of the fundamental convictions that came with discoveries was the fact that everything in nature that occurs naturally must be inherently good. There's a conviction attached to knowledge that was discovered there, but is that really true? What if the world as we know it is actually broken? Freud, all right? Some Decent insight in the realm of psychology, discovering subconscious impulses that can be helpful, understanding there's a lot beneath the surface going on and what it means to be a human. Lots of crazy stuff in Freud, too. But come, what came attached to that knowledge was a conviction that to be a satisfied human being means having your sexual needs fulfilled. Is that right? What if to be human is to have an identity deeper than our sexual desires? Take Karl Marx, theories of human systems and power dynamics in society. There can be helpful observations in that realm, um, but attached to that knowledge came a conviction that power dynamics are the sole problem with society, that evil is primarily structural. Is that right? There's truth in there, but what if systems of people produce evil because 
individuals have broken hearts, and when you get communities of them together, you get broken systems. You see, my friend was making a statement about internalization of human fulfillment that didn't come out of nowhere. Over the last hundred years, we have been groomed as a people to believe certain things about what it means to be human. What is natural must be good. Systems of people are the problem, not what's inside of me. Sexual fulfillment is what it means to be a fulfilled human being, not an identity deeper than that. The teaching of Jesus, though, and the gospel itself declare to us something fundamentally, diametrically opposed to the conclusion that fulfillment comes from within. Jesus came declaring something to us from outside of us that resonates within us to our emptiness and brokenness that says, you have need, you have desire that is intended to be fulfilled, but it comes from outside of you. Because surprisingly, as we see in Romans 12, you and I were created for relationships. You and I were created with souls that are created to be connected to something bigger than us. And so, as we open up Scripture today, what we're going to see is that learning relational presence with God does not come naturally to us, but maybe it was not created to be natural to us. Maybe God created it in a way that presupposes we would learn it with Him. I'm going to suggest to you that that's what Paul's teaching us in Romans 12 here, okay? The presence of God takes practice. And I hope that that is encouraging and life-giving to us as a people because we feel condemnation when we just don't know how to make God real to us in our daily life. We feel like there's something just jacked up with us and the way that we're living when in fact all that God desires at the start is to say, would you be open would you be open to my spirit teaching you what it looks like to move from your aloneness to withness with me? So let's unpack this. God's presence takes practice because, here's the first presupposition, what you do with your body is your spiritual worship. What you do with your body is your spiritual worship. All I'm doing is rephrasing exactly what Paul says here in Romans 12, right? Nothing profound. Paul says in, Rome, in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, by my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. You see the connection that's just right there on the surface, right? Most of us can't even begin to comprehend that body and soul could be so interconnected, though distinct, that what we do with our bodies is what we're doing with our soul. You see, Plato has shaped us from long ago to create this distinction where like the body is fallen and broken and corrupt, but deep within me is this little jar that holds my spirit and they're distinct. And so we get statements in our culture today. How common is this? Okay, This is how blind we are to this reality right here in Romans 12. 
Um, John Gruden, football coach, Oakland Raiders, uh, Las Vegas Raiders, sorry. Uh, it was leaked over the last few weeks. Uh, his emails, all sorts of racist language in them. It was absurd how racist his statements were. The statement that we're so used to now is, I apologize for my behavior. Um, I didn't intend to harm anyone. I'm not a racist. I just do and say racist things. <laughs> but you, if you just understood my heart, you would know I'm not a racist. Um, pastor gets caught in an adulterous affair, stands in front of people and says, I, maybe even might say, I, I sinned, it was evil, it was wrong, but you need to know that within my heart, and then they go on to describe how good they are. You need to know culture is hardwired to protect itself and to teach you to protect yourself so that you can do whatever you want with your body and be deceived to think that your soul can still be worshiping and loving God and healthy. Jesus smashed that when he said, a tree is known by its what? Fruit. A fruit tree can't produce thorns just like a thorn tree can't produce edible fruit. You try and eat the fruit of a thorn bush, no matter how much you tell yourself it's fruit, you're going to need to go to the dentist afterwards. No matter how much fruit you tape onto a dead tree, the fruit's going to die and rot and be worse off anyway. If we want to be a church that learns the presence of God, if you want to be a Christian who experiences joy in God's presence and contentment that believes and knows the peace that you can have, you need to get this fundamental assumption right. You cannot believe that there are things you believe in your heart that are not expressed in your life. There can be multiple things that reside in your heart at the same time, all right? Just because you're stuck in sin as a Christian does not mean you don't believe and love Jesus. It's not as though there are layers of your heart and there's one thing at the very center. Our hearts are conflated and mixed and murky and hard to understand and discern. But what flows out into yours and my life is a result and a fruit of what is inside of our hearts. Do you want to know why the world will never tell you that? And the world actually has mechanisms bent against it? Because all the evil that we see in the world, the world needs to protect itself from the conclusion that comes from that evil. Maybe we're evil. Maybe we can have hope in human progress. Maybe we do need help from outside of ourselves. And that's the first step to opening up to something that could possibly be outside. The world is rigged to deceive you into thinking your heart is good while your life is bad. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that is why the church can be so hideous. Is because there's actually still evil in the heart of Christians. And as the church, we need 
We need to shift from an assumption that says I can live a certain way but still be pure on the inside to say I need to deal with what I do with my body. And hopefully what you and I feel is not condemnation but the invitation to say God's willing to actually teach me a new way of living with my body. And that can be worshipful to him. He could be pleased by it. Hopefully, simply making that one connection that what you do with your body is what is in your soul, is your spiritual worship, that you would start to feel, I need to practice my Christian faith. I need to practice following Jesus. Because the world is intent on teaching you to practice something totally different that would remove you from a day-by-day joy in Jesus. Now, obviously, this is not easy. That's why Paul can say that you would be a living sacrifice. It is sacrificial. Following Jesus is hard. That's why he said, narrow is the way that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's hard. The way that leads away from God is easy. But it undoes your humanity. The truth is our hearts are far more complicated than we want to admit. But the Christian life is an immersion into relationship with God in our God-drenched world. But relationship takes practice. And Jesus, the smartest man who ever lived, is a willing teacher. That's why Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We need to learn what it looks like to go from our aloneness that we feel because of sin, which alienates us from life in God, into the full light of God's presence. Just like when you're in a movie theater and you're watching a movie and you walk out and it's the middle of the day and your eyes need to adjust. Just like a captive needs to relearn what it means to be free and have their agency back. That's what the Christian life is. And so, God's presence takes practice. It feels self-giving. But self-giving love is what you were created for and what it means to be human. That's why we will never be ashamed to call you to sacrifice. Trusting that in those calls, you hear the invitation of Jesus that says, life is being offered to you. You do not exist to be self-centered and self-gratifying. You exist to be self-giving and Christian transformation. In fact, all of heaven and eternity and the new creation will be joyful self-forgetfulness. One of the things that we've been practically learning, right, we're learning the presence of God and God has been faithful to actually teach us new things as we have been submitting ourselves to and being open to it. One of those things is the importance of prayer, the essential nature of prayer as a people. We just came out with hands raised and said, God, we do not know how to pray. Not that we don't know the function of what to do with our mouths to pray, but that we don't know how to pray in a way that's life-giving, that's joyful, that's regular, that could be longer than five minutes. And so a couple of years ago, we just said, God, teach us to pray. 
um, we shared probably a month ago at our prayer meeting here on a Sunday morning, um, we were having a really difficult time partnering with a local um, group home in the foster care system. We had invested money, we had invested time into training volunteers, into recruiting people for vision, and we just got no word from them. Um, we just hit a stone wall. Emails not returned, all of that. So we said, we're going to pray. We're going to dedicate ourselves to pray that God would tear down walls that apparently we can't get through. And so we prayed, and the foster ministry had a prayer meeting, and we prayed here on a Sunday. And just this last week, an email, because sometimes prayer also needs some actual pushing and knocking on a door, right? An email was finally returned, and a meeting has been scheduled so that we can actually start getting involved and seeing the needs of our city met. God's teaching us, very practically, prayer precedes power. Prayer precedes power. Prayer actually has power to do things that we ourselves cannot do. The easiest thing in the world would have been to just throw up our hands and say, we tried. God, you can't hold us against us for not doing something good in our city. God is faithful to teach us that his presence takes practice. But he doesn't leave us alone to just discover these things on our own because he's given us a gift in our bodies. He's given you and me a gift in our bodies to learn his presence. And one of those tools to learn God's presence is called liturgy. How many of you heard the word liturgy before? Many of you, if you're like me, grew up going to a church, if at all, on Christmas and Easter, and the preacher had a robe on. This is like my Sunday best, like I button up my top collar and that's how I get fancy. But I went to a church where the, the preacher would ascend into a podium high above everyone. There was stained glass and a cross. There was this huge uh, arch above and a robe on and just kind of open the scriptures and give a feel-good message about positivity and human power. And then that was it. Liturgy reminded me of kind of the rote action and activity that was there. It was dry. It felt religious and purposeless and pointless. But we cannot just throw the concept of habits and practice and even this word liturgy because of those kind of dead religion thoughts. Also, we need to confront the kind of Christian spirituality that just wants ecstasy and experience without structure and learning, all right? Both of them will lead us astray. Dead religion and experience in our hearts that doesn't pour out into our lives. The truth is, liturgy is a bridge to learn God's presence with our bodies. Liturgy is a bridge to learn God's presence with our bodies. One of my favorite definitions of liturgy comes in this paragraph by an author named Mark Buchanan. I'm going to read this. It's a paragraph, so listen and follow along with me. It says this about liturgy. At its best, liturgy comprises the gestures by which we honor transcendent reality. It helps give us concrete expression to deepest convictions. It gives us choreography for things unseen and allows us to brush heaven among the shades of the earth. Our most significant relationships and events have a liturgical shape to them already. They have rites of passage, Birthdays and homecomings, graduations and goodbyes, Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter. 
you probably have all sorts of thoughts about traditions, right? Those are a form of liturgy. These things also provide us with a means of entering into the transcendent realities. What's a birthday without a cake? At least one candle burning on it and a huddle of well-wishers singing their, with their ragged, hoary voices. What's a birthday without liturgy? And if you've been in our community very long, what's a birthday without what? Birthday questions. If it's your birthday, we will celebrate you, but we will also put you on the spot so we can get to know you more. You see the liturgy involved in that, right? We don't just want to sing to you and send you on your way. We want to know you more. So we'll ask you invasive questions. It's not as intimidating as it sounds. One of them is, what was your favorite outfit from the last year, right? So just as our bodies and souls are interconnected, so too is the material world and the kingdom of heaven. Liturgy are practices that flow and express our convictions about that heavenly reality that's behind what we can see. If we just live spontaneously, we aren't going to live purposefully. If we just live spontaneously, we're not going to live purposefully. There's structure behind what we do on Sundays, why we choose to place things in the way that we do. There's a reason that we take communion every Sunday. There's a reason that we sing songs and we try and give space for prayer and we open God's word to listen to his voice. And over the coming weeks, we're going to actually describe to you the structure of that liturgy, not just so you can understand what we're doing here and participate joyfully, but so that you too can start to have structured um, expectation of experiencing transcendence each day of your life. Learning the presence of God takes practice. It involves our bodies, and it takes liturgical worship, practices and habits, all right? If you think about your life with God, what you do, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for very long, chances are you know you should open your Bible and that you should pray. What does it look like for you to do that? You just rely on spontaneity to do it? If you're like me, I don't do that first thing in the morning. Guess what I don't end up doing the rest of the day? Doing it at all. All right? When you think about applying this in your life, I would encourage you, get your phone out right now. Get that phone out. We are not hearers of the word only. We are hearers and doers. Take down some notes right now as I convey to you a couple of practical ways that we get to use our bodies to lead our souls that we would experience God's presence, okay? The first thing and the last thing you do in your day, your waking hours, are opportunities to remember what is most true, to live out of the convictions, God, my day today is yours. I am not my own. I am Christ's. Help me live with you today. Help me be open to you. If there is suffering in my day today, help me to suffer with you. If there are opportunities for sacrificial love today, help me take them. At the end of your day, as you lay your head on your pillow even, reflecting simply on the truth, convictionally, that God was with you no matter what happened. Your union with Jesus assures you of that. 
and reflecting. Because guess what happens? When, when we fall and stumble our way through our day, which is every day for a Christian, we're tempted to believe we've failed God and he's further away from us now. But reflecting on his presence with us continually actually changes the way that we experience our failures. It assures us of what Paul says here. Why does Paul say we can offer ourselves to God in sacrifice? By the mercy of God. He says, I urge you, I appeal to you, Christian, church, by the mercies of God. The only reason we can have any expectation that God is willing to receive our worship is because he's shown himself to be merciful. And not just like, okay, I'm sending my son to deal with you all, die on a cross so that I can hold my nose and deal with you. As though mercy is something that he has to stir himself toward. In the gospel, what we see most beautifully about the heart of God is that you bump him and mercy pours forth in love. It's not just that God has mercy he can extend. It's that he loves to pour out mercy to wayward people. I cannot simply stress enough how much you and I disbelieve this in our day-to-day life. We inherently believe that God loves those who are externally pure, and so our Christian life needs to mainly look like not screwing it up. That the Christian life is mainly about abstaining from things in the world. That's why, honestly, it just doesn't look alluring to people in the world. Like, who can't just... Just not indulging yourself in the world? Is that really what it means to be satisfied? But if we would see God has removed every barrier into his presence through Jesus Christ and the assurance of raising Jesus from the dead proves to you and me he has mercy. Gives us confidence to make mistakes. It gives us confidence to know as we try and live courageously with Jesus, he covers our, 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 our failings, he covers even our, our mixed motives with mercy. Come to me, walk with me, fail, let's fail together. Because the truth is, as you love people that are in really hard situations, guess what? You are not going to know what to do exactly. You know what the worst thing you could do is? Nothing. Because the opposite of love is not hatred. It's just plain old apathy. And one of the things that grieves me about what Christianity in our churches, especially in L.A., looks like so often is apathy about doing good in the world and just storing up some eternal security so we can do whatever we want to in life. Jesus invites you and me to discover that life with God is learning to joyfully and courageously give ourselves in sacrificial love for others. That's why Paul says here something that is puzzling to me. He says that by repeated testing or that by testing, 
you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That can mean nothing else than that learning to follow Jesus in the brokenness of our city and in our own brokenness requires practice. We got to test and know and feel what it looks like to be a loving person. What it means to pray with fervency and joy and power and expectation. If it doesn't come naturally to you to learn how to pray and to learn how to love people that are in desperate need, guess what? You're not alone. Let's have some courage. God's willing to teach you and me. He has mercy that covers all of our failings if we would simply be open and be with him in it. The alternative to liturgy that shapes our convictions is compulsion that controls us internally. You can live two ways. You can live by convictions, which liturgy expresses for us and our beliefs. God is love and mercy and grace and has purpose for us. So we're going to conform into these patterns of living. Or you can live by your inner compulsions. And I want, I want to hear what Paul says when he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Um, we had game night on Friday, and there's always fun conversation that goes on in game night. If you ever want to come to game night, just come up and ask. We'd love to have you over. Um, <laughs> as we were talking, though, someone said, hey, did you know that... Um, you know those pretzel places in the mall, right? Wetzel's Pretzels, Aunt Annie's, these places of glorious deliciousness and the smell that you cannot turn away from once you smell it? Guess what these sneaky people do? Someone told us that they purposefully go for places on the bottom floor of a mall. They intentionally get bad ventilation, like the minimum standards, so that the smells from their pretzel shop would pour out into the, into the mall and that you would smell it and say, I got to have a pretzel. I don't know why. I didn't come here wanting a pretzel, but guess what? I need a pretzel. Aunt Annie plays on your compulsions. <laughs> Wetzel is committed to hooking you with his smells. That's the game and the pattern that Paul is talking about here. The world is not seeking to convince you. You just need to express yourself and find your own original source of, of, of like expression. The world's trying to hook you by your compulsions. It's trying to make you a slave. There is nothing original about you finding your own interior you. It's as old as the garden. Are you sure that God said that? You know, you really just need to look inside of yourself, and then you can be like God. You, you were created as a ball of clay, and one thing clay cannot do is shape itself. If it tries to, it ain't going to look pretty. One thing that's great about clay is if it has a molding, it can be turned into something beautiful. You can be turned into something beautiful, but it will not be found by you looking inside of yourself, by you following your desires, by you searching for your true meaning and expressing it. 
you will look like something that is not beautiful by the end of your life. In fact, you'll probably be so addicted to your compulsions that you become something utterly, utterly not human. That's what addiction is. It's so giving way to our compulsion that we hide and we give in and then we can't even have a source of personhood without what we are addicted to. But if we would embrace our convictions about the way the world is and who it is that invites us to walk with him, we will be formed into something beautiful and meaningful and purposeful and joyful with a kind of joy the world can't take from you. You can either live by your compulsions and become unhuman or live by convictions and be turned into something beautiful and truly human. That's what the church is supposed to do. The church is the hands of the living God by the Spirit taking us together. You, therefore, with your bodies, offer spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. The plural bodies singularly together. That the church would be the place where Christians are molded into something beautiful. That's the tragedy of Christians just thinking, oh yeah, I am the church. Wherever I go is the church. Wrong! You and I need wise examples whose mistakes we can learn from and whose wisdom can shape us where we are. Not so that we would be joyless, but so that we could learn where true joy is that no one can take from us in our everyday life. Do not believe that compulsions are the thing that will satisfy you. Convictions are there for a purpose, to tap us into the heavenly reality that is always accessible if we would listen to Jesus. And here's the thing, if we would devote ourselves to practicing the presence of God, it is not legalism to say, Read your Bible and pray every morning. It's wisdom. Don't do it because you think God loves you more. Certainly not. That's legalism. But drawing near to God is learning from Him, is listening to Him, is facing Him, is embracing Him, is loving Him, is going with Him. Without those structures, you can be assured that liturgy is not what you will be shaped by. There is an alternative that the early church had to decide between. Mark Buchanan, the author I quoted earlier, said there was an alternative to liturgy that the church could have chosen. Liturgy originally meant a public work, something accomplished by a community for a community. For us, it's the presence of God. A town bridge, for instance, as an example. The oddness and awkwardness of the church's decision to take this word is even greater when we realize they had a word for worship close at hand, in wide circulation, within a religious context. The word is orgy. Orgy now has a sordid connotation. But in the days of the early church, it did not. Or at least the sordidness was still in the background. Orgy described a public event that produced a private, usually ecstatic experience. It was a word pagan religion used for their worship. The emphasis was always and squarely on the emotional experience of the individual. 
It was all about me. Not so with liturgy. Liturgy is done by me. I am invited, perhaps required, to play a role. But it's not about me. Liturgy is about us. It's about the other. Its purpose is to benefit the entire community. So let me just present a really awkward question to you. Is your Christianity liturgy or orgy? Is it all about you and your felt experience or about you playing the defined role that God has given you that together we would rehearse heaven on earth? I assure you, orgy is not the direction you want to go. So, the presence of God takes practice. We need liturgy. We need to be transformed by liturgy, not conformed by our compulsions. And here is the offer. Liturgy and conforming in and experiencing what God offers us in his presence is the key to mission. You want to know why you're terrified going out into the world and standing with Jesus in your workplace or your classroom? It's because you and I, don't, and I experienced this too, all right? I, I got a, a, the coach of my kid's flag football team suffering big time in his body, and I was like, oh gosh, we've seen God heal so many people. I want to tell him that I'm praying for him for healing, that we've seen Jesus heal people, and we just, I'm going to pray for miraculous healing for him. And I went back and forth, and finally I just texted and pressed send just so I'd do it. But I was scared. It's scary in our world to stand with Jesus. You know why? Because we've experienced the letdown. And a lot of that is because we haven't committed ourselves to practice. But if we would practice, if we would be a people who say, I need to be on Sunday gathered with God's people because I need to learn embracing God's presence. I need to have convictions that are deeper than compulsions. We'll, we'll experience joy in God. And we'll flow out in confidence that he wants to meet other people and invite them into the same reality too. Because heaven is here through Jesus. And if you are not a Christian today, I want to simply invite you. Jesus does not expect you to have a clean life before you come to him. The disciples were chosen in the Gospels primarily simply because of their openness to follow him. Faith is just openness to learn his presence, to learn heaven on earth, to say, Jesus, I trust you. You can teach me. You can use me. I am yours. You are Lord and Savior. And we would love to walk with you through that. We are broken people. We are messy people. Hopefully you can hear. We're acknowledging there's a lot of stuff that we've got wrong in our faith. But we're going to be committed to learning and growing. Amen? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would help us, that you would teach us. We want to be... Um, by your mercy, so free to fail. I pray any of us that are trapped in our aloneness, in our addiction, in our darkness, in sin today, who claim to be your followers, would you allow us to walk out into the light of your mercy today and begin the process in that area of our lives to 
renew our minds. Would you help the Commons LA, us as a church community, be humble enough to acknowledge where we have been led by our compulsions, where we have not honored you with our bodies, humble enough that we can say there is evil and sin in our hearts that our bodies have simply expressed. And would you give us a vision of grace and mercy and love that maybe we have never seen before? Holy Spirit, teach us the presence of God in a day-by-day kind of way. Help us to have the resolve and the grit to say, I will practice God's presence. I will be with God's people. And I trust that God will be faithful. So Lord, open our hearts today. Allow us to walk out into the light with you. Help us to submit underneath your word that our convictions about reality would be shaped by you and strengthen our feeble knees, lift us up as we fall, and pour us out in love and joy and sacrifice for our city, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.